offense, the emotion of offense is a red flag. And you, if you feel offended by uh, an ideology or something that somebody says, that is a flag that you need to pay attention to that. And you need to delve into that with a genuinely open mind that they may be correct in this thing that is offending you, or there may be elements of their worldview that can positively augment your own. Hello and welcome to The Daily Helping with Dr. Richard Schuster. Food for the brain, knowledge from the experts, tools to win at life. I'm your host, Dr. Richard. Whoever you are, wherever you're from, and whatever you do, this is the show that is going to help you become the best version of yourself. Each episode, you will hear from some of the most amazing, talented, and successful people on the planet who followed their passions and strive to help others. Join our movement to get a million people each day to commit acts of kindness for others. Together, we're going to make the world a better place. Are you ready? Because it's time for your daily helping. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Daily Helping Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Richard, and we are going to have a fascinating interview that is going to be thought-provoking and exciting today. I can't wait to share my guests with you. Originally, a neuroscientist focused on brain-computer interface and the evolution of human cognition, whose work is on display at the Smithsonian, Malcolm Collins felt he could learn more about the way humans interact with the world and each other by pursuing an MBA at the Stanford Graduate School of Business. There he met Simone, his wife and co-author, who at the time was the director of marketing at HubPages.com, managing a team of 20,000 freelancers. Together, they co-founded the art commission marketplace, ArtCorgi.com, after which Malcolm became the director of strategy at South Korea's most desired source of early stage capital. And Simone earned her graduate degree from Cambridge while working in venture capital. The Travel Now runs a number of companies, splitting their time between their North American headquarters in Miami, Florida, and their South American offices in Lima, Peru. Malcolm and Simone, welcome to the show. It is so exciting to be here, Dr. Richard. I love it. And so this is awesome because we've got both of you here, and you both have such different backgrounds. So I really love to get into my guests' backgrounds and their whys and their passions. So Malcolm, Talk to us about really what got you started on the path you're on today, and, and then we'll get to Simone and kind of where you guys met and the Hollywood love story and all that good stuff. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, uh, there's a few different ways you can say sort of our book and the movement that we're building started. Um, and one path could be within my background. You know, I, I started my career as a neuroscientist. I have stuff on display at the Smithsonian. I've been published in the field. But even before all of that, the area or one of the areas of neuroscience that I was just obsessed with, especially the, uh, when I was younger, um, was the idea of cults and sort of brainwashing and how they changed the way a person reacted to sort of generic societal stimuli. Um, and that they seemed to be able to maintain people at... Um, you know, sort of unusual emotional levels for extended periods of time. And so I became really, really interested in this. And I started thinking, what if, you know, with, with in general biology, you can use something called a, a vector to introduce something into a cell or into a, a, a person's DNA. And one way this was often done 
is with viruses. So they'll take the DNA out of a virus and then put some DNA they want to get into your cells into the virus, and that's the vector. And I thought, well, what if sort of the way that cults change a person's psyche could be used as a vector to transform yourself into whoever you want to be, um, which makes sort of our entire movement similar or adjacent to positive psychology, but also incredibly different because it's not about trying to maximize certain emotions like happiness or something unless you have consciously decided that that's an emotion you're trying to maximize. Um, and once we got good at, or once I got good at this, I realized that it was quite easy to change your mental state and rewrite who you are as a person. Um, and as soon as I realized that, one, things like happiness became a lot more trivial in my life when I realized how easy it was to put myself in a state where pretty much any stimuli would cause that reaction. The second is that it really forces you to take ownership for who you are. As soon as you realize you can't say, oh, you know, I got uh, angry when, when this happened and so I reacted this way or I reacted this way because it's just who I am. When you have control over just who you are, then you need to take complete ownership for your life and the way you react. So you put those two things together and... <laughs> yeah, I, I, I guess I created sort of the germ of what became the book. The germ of what became the book. I love that. The rest of it sort of happened, um, uh, I think, as Simone and I first met. Do you want to talk about that story, Simone? Sure, yeah. For context, I was a very typical Silicon Valley, California liberal girl when we met. I worked at a startup. I was I did basically their social media management, which is a glorified term for customer service. And I had the perfect life. I, I'd grown up as a very neurotic young girl and I had focused on grades in school and I wasn't very interested. Well, in the people. perfect life for a millennial. Yeah, you know, for a millennial. she had worked at a cupcake <laughs> store, she had worked at a fashion magazine, she had, you know, done all of that. She had her her 401k, her travel every year, her money to charity, and you you would travel around the world. And I would try to have these new transcendent experiences. So I'd visit Vatican City and tour all the churches and, and meet with a priest and try to understand his way of the world. And then I'd go to some religious site in rural China to try to understand some, you know, obscure Buddhist perspective. And, and I'd go on these trips every year and, and try to, you know, become more enlightened. And, and I also had these colorful outfits I'd wear every day to work and people loved me and thought I was really colorful. So I, I had the perfect life. And I For millennial. Yeah. With the millennial ideal. And I decided then once I reached age 24, that seeing as I had never dated before and had never had sex and had never really had a boyfriend of any sort, that to be the perfectly well-rounded person and have the perfect novel of a life and a perfect well-rounded character, I needed to experience that. Not that I wanted to ever be in a long-term relationship. I'm really, really happy by myself. And I wanted to just say, to, you know, young people someday that I had tried love and it was terribly underwhelming. So I set out a goal to fall in love and have my heart broken all in one year, just so I could say I'd done it. And so I created this very organized dating system that would encourage me to get out. I created a competitive points-based dating game in my office to encourage myself to get out because I was too much of a coward to go on dates without some sort of incentive. And I had a points-based system for determining if someone was worth a second date so I could rate them and not have to you know, actually make a call personally on whether or not I should reject them. And I met Malcolm during this industrialized process. And 
he was just so different from anyone I'd ever met before. He sat dead across from me and immediately said, well, I'm not looking to date. I'm looking to find a wife. And to be honest, I expect to find her this this fall when I start at Stanford's Graduate School of Business because they have a very large pool of pre-vetted candidates. And because he basically insinuated that he wanted to marry someone and I definitely wasn't good enough, blunt things um, and straightforward things and sort of not appropriate things that anyone had ever said to me on a date. And it was all sort of very offensive. And, and I thought it was one of the greatest things that I've ever heard. And, and so the first question I asked you was sort of why? What, what are you doing? Like, what's your goal with all this? That's right. And he had already laid out his life plan aside from just saying he wanted to have a, a, a wife. And when he turned around and asked me, what do you want to do and why? I sort of drew a blank. I said that I wanted to be happy and make other people happy, make the world a better place, you know, reach some level of enlightenment. And when he, he kept asking me, well, why? Why, you know, how do you define enlightenment? Why does that matter to you? Yeah. I really, you know, the only why answer... Why does the happiness of other people matter to you? Why does your own happiness matter to you? The only answer I could give was that it's what generally the books I read had implied was important and what people around me said was important. And so he sort of threw me on our first date into an existential crisis that I slowly was forced to address. And much like we guide people through in the book, I I went through the process of looking at all the different things that I could be living for and that I could be striving for. And I ultimately came to a conclusion and, and approached Malcolm and said, well, here's what I plan on doing and here's what I want to do with my life. And then he vaguely gestured in my direction and said, you plan to do it like that? And I, I admittedly looked like a manic Mexican dream girl in Silicon Valley wearing, you know, a your stuff, yeah. Yeah, vintage uh, rayons half in a 1950s dress with a petticoat. And basically he was saying, no one is going to take you seriously or listen to you because you look like a foolish girl. And I didn't say foolish girl. Well, you implied it. You implied it. And, and it was very offensive, but it was also extremely true. Um, this is so wild. I, I decided to, we, well, we basically sat down together and we created a character sheet for the ideal character to achieve my ultimate goal in life, my objective function, the thing that I decided really mattered to me. And it was completely different from who I was at the time. It, it spoke differently. You know, we outlined how it would dress, move, talk, behave. And then we slowly transformed me into that person. Well, not even that slowly. I mean, you, you transformed pretty quickly. And I, within about, you know, four months of that, you had achieved the, uh, you know, the third highest level position at your company. You became the director of marketing, managing a team of 20,000 people. Yeah, after basically front-facing customer service, being the most lowly person at the company. Uh, it, 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 that whole thing was this big revealing lesson to me saying that it is, you know, it does matter how you look. People do absolutely judge you by the way you dress and, and act and behave. And it's not about who you are on the inside. Well, well, yeah, what else is there to judge you by? So often people are like, oh, people will judge me by who I am on the inside. It's like, no, it's how you dress, act, and behave. That's what people judge you on. So I, I've got to ask, Simone, how did Malcolm do on your point rating sheet? For the second date, obviously you had the second date, but how did he do? All right, did he score high? <laughs> how did that go? He scored a forty-two out of fifty, which was incredible because every other person I dated uh, averaged around sixteen. It, it's a really good dating point system. The, and the only way reason I didn't get a perfect score is because one of the metrics was, "Does he want to see me again?" And you thought I did. Well, I assumed anyone with good taste would want to see me again. And I <laughs> that I had excellent taste. 
<laughs> All right. So you you guys both met with these very defined goals. Malcolm wants to get find a wife by the fall. You wanted to fall in love and break your heart in a year. And here you guys are coming up with goals and and crafting you know, what the ideal Simone looks like. Talk to us about what happened next in terms of starting your movement. Well, I mean, I think one thing was just as soon as Simone started to transform herself and, and we began working together, we just made an excellent team. And she very quickly, you know, she moved up within her company very quickly. You were a couple months after that, you were invited to speak at South by Southwest, you know. Um, and uh, a few months after that, we had people offering us money to start a company together. We ended up starting that that first company together after I had proposed to you online. I proposed to her on Reddit with a series of uh, commissioned art pieces. We utilized sort of, it, it went viral and we were like, oh, people actually like this. And so we took that idea and we used it to build our first company together, which was the um, art commission marketplace. And and then we ended up going into venture capital for a while. But during that entire time, we started thinking and working on a new method for sort of or an alternative to cognitive behavioral therapy based on our model of, of, of how humans think and how humans should think. More simply put, we kept notes on what was working and what wasn't working as we tried to achieve our goals and then started putting them down in a book because we said, wow, this is really effective. We're getting everything we want and we want our kids to be able to do this. But then as we started writing more, we thought, wait a second, like, we could help other people do this as well. well so we made a book. And, well, and working with other people. So originally before the book it was meant to be like a cognitive behavioral therapy method that yeah. we were working with a number of people on. Yeah. And, but then we figured a book is more scalable and easy for everyone to access. Hey guys, Dr. Richard here. For the past seven years, I've been privileged to bring you incredible guests who are changing the world and can help you become the best version of yourself. I'm really excited to share with you a new quiz that I created based on my clinical training that will curate for you a custom list of my top episodes and actionable strategies to help you wherever you are on your journey. All you need to do is go to drrichardschuster.com to take it, and it's 100% free. You'll be taking the next step on the journey to unlocking the power of you, and I can't wait to see where you'll go. And so the book that you're talking about, The Pragmatist Guide to Life. So take us through the book and what somebody is going to work through as they're reading this. Well, you'll start off by going through an extremely unpleasant process of questioning everything you've ever believed and and going through potential reasons why you might choose to exist and then having to, to come to terms with why they might be wrong. And eventually you will find something that maybe resonates with you. To, to add to that, what, we're, what we do in this first section is we say, choose an objective function. And your objective function is what you are trying to maximize with your life. And it's typically a collection of things that you think have intrinsic value, like maximizing uh, distributed happiness in other people or maximizing happiness in yourself or trying to or, live forever or, or, you know, success for your kids, but then you have to define success for your kids and why do you think that the, those metrics are meaningful. Um, and so we just sort of go through all of the various things that you could choose with a very clear eye to not guide people down any specific path. Right. That's really sort of a core of the philosophy of the book is that, we are not here to tell you 
what is the correct path in life? What should matter? We're just trying to outline the various uh, options and also help you determine which one you really would go for. And and challenge the various options and present challenges to the various things that you might decide have value in your life. And it's a rather unpleasant process. So anyway, once you once you go through that, that existential crisis and start to find meaning, then we guide you through the process of developing essentially hypotheses on how you think you can best achieve that thing you want to maximize. And, and it, it starts with very basic things like, I believe in the scientific method, and then goes on from like, okay, well, based on this, this is the political party I should have, and maybe you know, religion or no religion, and which religion, and what, how should I dress, etc. Then it goes from that. Okay, so now you have the thing you want to maximize, you have your game plan, and then you have to go into yourself. What kind of internal character would best execute on this game plan to maximize the thing you think matters most? And then after you've developed that internal character, eh, we go into how to develop the public figure that will also best maximize this Mm -hmm. kind of goal. So when we go through how to develop the internal character, you know, we're really focused on, okay, you design the person who's best able to maximize what you want to maximize in your life. And then we provide you with a framework for becoming that person. Right. Because let's say that, you know, you want to become, you want to maximize wealth. And your hypothesis is that by, you know, creating a successful business, that's the best way you can maximize it. But your character right now may be someone who's, you know, incredibly lazy and, and, and afraid of people with anxiety issues. Well, that character isn't exactly optimized to perhaps build the best business. So we can, we can walk you through the process of sort of changing your reaction to stimuli in a way that will react more optimally based on what you think you need and to allow you to more effectively achieve your objective function which for basically no one is wealth wealth is more often a hypothesis to fall into the second category yeah for how you achieve something like distributed happiness well we know a couple of people who've sort of mistakenly chosen maximizing money as their, as, as their core thing that they care <laughs> yeah, about but there's but, not a good philosophical framework for yeah yeah it's it's really interesting so you know once somebody determines who they want to be this optimized self so how how do you get there it's uh so what we advocate for is basically throwing yourself out of the the stage and out of the costume and away from all of the cast of characters that sort of remind you of who you are now, so that you have the freedom to redesign yourself. It, as as we well, all this said, is based on on some research. You know, there's some great studies. Uh, the one that we like most in terms of changing what we call entering a flux period, which is when you're sort of recontextualizing who you are in life. This happens a few times, like. When you start college, when you start a new job, something like that. A, a great study that was done on it was people who were addicted to, I think, heroin in Vietnam when they came back to the U.S. had, I think, like a 98% like they, they lost their addiction. And it was just because the context they were in was so different being in the Vietnam War versus being back as a civilian that they were able to very easily rewrite even really hard-coded parts or, or compulsions. And, it, and, you know, what you're saying is also very interesting, too. And, you know, I, I would be remiss as a, as a personal development podcast if I didn't mention the Jim Rohn quote about being an average of the people you surround yourself with. So, Simone, when you're talking about getting outside that comfort zone, changing up the people you surround yourself with, and there's, there's actually good science behind that, too, you know, talking about these things running around in our brain called mirror neurons, which make us really comfortable around things that we're comfortable with. So... What you're describing is phenomenal because that's there is science behind this, of course, and you're you're really getting people to shift to break those neural connections that they've got there and and 
undo some of those habits and make some new ones. So I like that. Yeah. I mean, and I really like this, what you're saying, you know, you are who you surround yourself with, but you're not just, you are who you're surrounding yourself with. Most people are the way we describe it as a sticky ball. That's been rolling down a, a dirty road. That's just covered in, in, in random detritus. And then they look at that sticky ball and they say, this is who I really am because a bunch of, you know, random events in their life made them that person. Whereas we would argue a you you choose to be is more who you really are than the random stuff that, that you picked up due to random events and, and interactions in your life. Makes sense. So take us through then, you know, the next part of the book and where a person would go from there on this evolutionary journey. Well, I mean, those are sort of the four core stages of the book. Okay. From there, you have to constantly question and refine. So even though we say, you know, decide what you want to maximize, decide how you to maximize it, you have to constantly question that. And as you get better information, you are going to change your mind. So one of the things that we advocate for most is being open-minded and also actively looking for things that are signs that you might be wrong. For example, we are really huge fans of, of offense because when one is offended, it usually means that one, something is questioning either their, their sense of self or their sense of reality. And two, they think it might be real uh, and genuine because if it weren't, they wouldn't be afraid of it. Yes. So offense is an emotion you specifically feel when you feel something is threatening your worldview. That could either be uh, your view of yourself, like somebody is presenting a, a real challenge to your view that you're a smart person, or it could be some other core aspect of your worldview. You do not feel the emotion of offense at a challenge that you do not see as legitimate. Um, you only feel offense if there's a part of your brain that is afraid that it may be true. Um, and that is fantastic as an emotional flag because it tells you the things about your worldview that you're afraid to challenge. And that's why we love the emotion of offense so much because it's like a big red flag of, oh, I need to focus on this. I need to study this. I need to understand this from the offending party's perspective um, and understand how philosophically they got to that position. Because if you are suboptimally pursuing your objective function, and that's the one thing you value most, you really, really do want to know when you're wrong. Makes, makes sense. It's very interesting. And, and I wanted to shift gears a little bit because I want to give some time and we talk about the nonprofit institution that you guys have created dedicated to all this. So talk to us about that, if you would, please. Well, the core purpose of the institution is to help people in an unbiased fashion and begin to help schools do this and publish other work. You know, we've got a few other pieces that will be coming out under the institution. Decide sort of why. Help people come to their own answers for why. What do I want from my life and why do I want those things? Because as Simone has said, society just gives us these default answers that are very harmful because a lot of people just accept them without having any reason for accepting them. Oh, I want to reach some form of enlightenment or, oh, I want to, uh, you know, improve the lives of other people as much as I can without thinking, okay, how do I define improve the lives of other people? Why do I think that thing is a value? What's the framework behind that belief? Have I ever really challenged this belief? Because if you're wrong about that, if you're wrong about your objective function, Every decision you make in life is wrong because this is the core thing that you're using to decide. Uh, your reaction to pretty much anything. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, you're talking about one's world worldview. So it, it's kind of like, you know, the Terminator. I, I always like that reference with those, <laughs> you know, like he, he had a programmed algorithm for what his objectives were, and that's all he saw. So you're, you're essentially talking about the same thing, which, which we know to be true. So that makes a lot of sense. Uh, I'd love to know, and, and, and let me just say that I, I am aware, and I think it's amazing that you guys do this, that all of the proceeds from your book go to your nonprofit institution, which is magnificent. But so talk to us about, you know, since you've established this nonprofit, some of the data and some of the feedback that you've gotten back from the community based on the work that you guys are doing. I think the the biggest thing that's that's both surprised and pleased us is just how much people want to build a community around it. They they really want people they can go to who will help them question themselves without pushing an agenda on them. And it, it breaks my heart that people feel like they can't really there isn't something like that already. But it makes me really glad to know that you know everyone talks about oh everyone's putting themselves in an echo chamber with social media. No one wants to hear other sides. They totally do. The problem is that there's just not any any place we can go now that offers that. And, and we're really hoping we can build this up and, and make that make our and, foundation the thing. And was, I think even worse is, is while there's a few organizations that like pretend that they are not biased or that may not have been super biased in the past, they have since become quite, I would say, corrupted or, or quite influenced by significant bias to an extent where people just don't feel like there's any source they can trust to not have an agenda. But to not have an agenda, you've also got to be willing to 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 not push things that everybody assumes that you're going to push. You know, uh, for example, uh, one of the core things that we think a lot of people are just told in society is, oh, well, I mean, obviously equality has value. Or obviously you want to be happy. Or obviously human rights matter. And and we're, you know, to, to truly serve our agenda, we cannot say that. We cannot say that that human rights have inherent value. Yeah, and when somebody says, well, help me think through my beliefs, you know, those are some of the beliefs that we would be challenging. Yeah. That's pretty wild. I imagine you get quite a bit of pushback on, on those in particular. Not really. I think a lot of people, especially if they're coming to us with this sort of thing, they find it very refreshing. And I think that there are so many things in our society that you're just told are questions you're not allowed to ask. And people like to, even from just an academic and sort of fun, creative perspective, say, okay, I'm going to try and question the thing that I have always been told I'm never even allowed to think about. Outstanding. So this has been so interesting. And one of the more wild episodes we've had, you guys are are absolutely quite the pair. And I've really enjoyed this discussion. As you know, I ask every guest who comes on this show a single question, and that is, what is your biggest helping? The single most important piece of information you'd like somebody to walk away with after listening to this discussion today? For me, the, the biggest thing and the thing that, that is uh, sort of a, a recent inclusion in our life philosophy that has helped me the most is Offense, the emotion of offense is a red flag. And you, if you feel offended by uh, an ideology or something that somebody says, that is a flag that you need to pay attention to that and you need to delve into that with a genuinely open mind that they may be correct in this thing that is offending you or there may be elements of their worldview that can positively augment your own. And I think it's a really important message in a world today where it's, you know, on college campuses become very common to say, well, this could be offensive to someone, so you're not allowed to say it. 
you're not allowed to share this information. Um, when in reality, if something is offensive, that means it needs to be shared a thousand times more than any other piece of information because what it means is it is challenging the way somebody sees the world and could get them to a worldview that is closer to the truth. To add to that, if you are proven wrong about something and you change your mind, it's not a bad thing. You're not a flip-flopper. You're not weak-willed. You are now a better person because you have better information. You're stronger and you're flexible enough to improve whereas other people just are broken and they can't. So get offended, get excited about being offended. And if you, it turns out that you've been wrong for years, well, that's fantastic because now you have better information and you won't make the same mistakes. Get excited about getting offended. I absolutely love it. Malcolm and Simone, this has been really an interesting episode. Where can people find you guys? So, I mean, the first thing we would suggest, if people like sort of what we're saying, the first way to engage is go to Amazon, look for the Pragmatist Guide to Life. We sell it for 99 cents there for the digital version. It's the cheapest. We can sell it and all the profits go to uh, charity anyway. So um, get it, read it. We would love to hear your feedback on it. And if it sounds like our worldview and our way of thinking is something you want to try to help us support and spread. Uh, we would love for you to reach out to it at us at pragmatist.guide or uh, Malcolm at pragmatist.guide. Fantastic. And so for those of you who are not in front of the computer, we will have everything that is Malcolm and Simone Collins in the show notes at thedailyhelping.com as well as in the Daily Helping app available on iTunes and the Google Play Store. Well, it has been fantastic. Thank you both so much for coming on the show today. Oh, this was so much fun. Thank you for having us. Absolutely. And thanks to each and every one of you who chose to tune into this episode. If you like what you heard, go subscribe to us on iTunes and leave us a five-star review because this is what helps other people find the podcast. But most importantly, go out there today and do something nice for someone else, even if you don't know who they are, and post it in your feeds using the hashtag MyDailyHelping because the happiest people are those that help others. <laughs>